Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this very sunny Monday. Coming up on the program, we are going to be talking with, uh, we're checking in with West Coast Duty Free once again to see how busy it was this past weekend. That with the return of the PCR test for even those smaller trips across the border. Also checking in with a Merit homeowner about what's happening. We know the Coquihalla reopened today. What's happening with the cleanup, though, and all of the damage in Merit? So we're going to get a bit of an update on that. We're starting the show, though, talking a little bit more about the restrictions. They were announced on Friday. Many of the new COVID-19 restrictions are now in effect in BC. And joining us to talk about what impact that's having on at least one part of the arts and culture scene is Daryl, sorry, Daniel Zindler, host and artistic director of one of Vancouver's larger New Year's Eve events. This is an event taking place at Queen Elizabeth Theatre. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What was your response when you first heard the restrictions and the the announcement on Friday? Uh, Confusion, I I guess, as is often the case. Uh, We were in rehearsals on Friday when this was announced, uh, thinking that we would need to cancel our New Year's Eve event since that was what was said and have since learned uh, and read into the details of the new restrictions, the measures that come into effect today. Um, and in, in, in actual fact, we, we need to make changes rather than uh, outright cancelling our events. So we're a, we, we host a, a family-friendly, all-ages uh, celebration at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. It's our New Year's Eve variety show. It's hosted by Circus 3. And um, we've always been a seated event. So we've done this eight years, and it's always been a seated event. So um, because we don't have dancing or mingling within our event, we're able to move forward. Um, within those restrictions, though, the biggie for us that we've had to adapt to is because we're in a large venue. Um, our venue, uh, the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, is a capacity of 2,700. We're over that 1,000 limit, so we do have to restrict our capacity, unfortunately, to, to 50% at, at the last minute, which has uh, been frustrating, but we're, we're trying our best to move with the punches. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people are, are doing that. So are you able then to continue, and you'll still hold the event with 50% capacity? Yes, it is our plan to move forward. Um, we're in a, we're very fortunate that we're a nonprofit community organization. So beyond ticket sales, unlike many commercial concerts and what have you, uh, we do get you know outside support and donations to, to make things happen. Uh, yeah, the dialogue between the province has been really odd for us because on one hand, last week on Monday, the province of British Columbia announced uh, much-needed funding towards a lot of events via what's called the Fairs, Festivals, and Events Recovery Fund. Um, so we were a recipient of that and received some some um, grant money to make our event a reality and to also to recover. And that covers events all the way to like even big festivals next summer and stuff starting up quite soon, like our own New Year's Eve event. Um, but then, you know, a few days later, it was surprising within the same week that we're being supported for an event that then is being, you know, either cancelled or restricted uh, quite greatly. So, um, yeah, anyways, that's just a sign of the times, I guess, where, where, you know, the government can say one thing uh, at the start of the week and then a different, you know, department makes decisions that, uh, you know, don't necessarily align with decisions on what is being supported within the arts community. Are you hearing from people with tickets or other concerns or people canceling because of concerns with having an event like this? Uh, not, not yet, surprisingly so. Unlike before, where we had like refund requests and, and refunded tickets and made changes. Um, this time around, no. We've had a lot of ticket buyers 
contact us proactively wondering what's happening um, since there's a lot of confusion of whether we are cancelling or not, which we are not. We're just having reduced capacity. Um, so, so that's great. It, it's good to know that there's people in our community here in Vancouver that are ready to support live the arts and its live form and um, that are, are willing and able to, to come out and join us. It's good to know that we're able to offer a, a, a safe alternative to maybe the normal parties that we're used to where you're mingling, going up to a bar multiple dancing to a more, um, you know, more restricted form and can safely sit down and, and exit with uh, a lot more distancing than you would in, in what you Oh, Daniel, your phone seems to have cut out there. Sorry? Uh, your phone cut out there. We couldn't hear you there for a second. So um, I was in the middle of saying um, that we're in a fortunate position where we're doing assigned seating within our event, and we're really happy that a lot of our ticket holders are, are ready to come to our event with the new restrictions and are also happy that we're taking safety steps to, to safely do it at 50% capacity. And that kind of answers my, my next question, but I was curious if you were able to do that. you think that with masks being worn, I'm assuming, and with people being fully vaccinated who are in attendance and with the extra space with the lesser capacity, do you feel confident that it is a safe environment? Yeah, we, we feel confident that it's a safe environment. Um, we've take, taken additional steps beyond that proactively. For example, we're not doing an intermission, which was a, a normal part of the show. So often a, a, one of the most um, um, dangerous times of, of a show is coming and going, and an intermission creates more of that when you have that 20 minutes break. Um, so, yeah, we've removed entry and exit for patrons so that there's any congregating so that people are more safely able to get to their seats and we're, we've limited food and beverage as well so that people have to wear a mask and have no reason to remove their mask to drink a beverage or, or have a snack during the show also. How are you feeling about going into the new year? I know this is the big event that's happening on the 31st but how are you feeling with where things are at with the virus with this variant and what it might look like in the new year? Yeah, we've become, you know, like many performing arts organizations, we've become what uh, was pre met a, a year or two in advance of what shows we're presenting. Um, and now it's sort of more month by month. So we, beyond this New Year's Eve variety show that we host every year, we present a, a number of touring circus shows. Um, and we do have plans for that in the spring. And at this point, we're just at kind of the wait and see type point to see what happens. And if more restrictions or cancellations are required, we need to be in a position to respond to that. Uh, but at the same time, we're a nonprofit that badly wants to see performing artists, circus artists return to work here in Vancouver for many of the artists on our stage. It's been almost two years since they've been able to perform and make a living doing what they love and do best. And just one other question about the capacity. So have you had to reach out to people, though, because I would imagine there are ticket holders that if you're going down to 50 percent, everybody with a ticket might not be able to come or has that been worked out? Unfortunately, this year, unlike last year, where it was known day, a day before the restrictions, we do have enough time that we were not we had not sold more than fifty percent capacity. So that wasn't an issue for us yet. Uh, the issue for us, uh, from an administrative standpoint, is that we've been trying to proactively reach out to current ticket holders to move seats around. So there were 
patrons that were seated next to other patrons outside of their, their family or their bubble, their party. Um, and we're trying to space those, those out now. So that, that's kind of where we're at is trying to move people around and then see what seats we have uh, available beyond that, which there are still a few tickets available. Um, so, yeah, we're definitely happy the province made this announcement now rather than after Christmas when we would have to have canceled tickets and, and been, you know, the bearer of bad news to those that were planning to come. All right. Well, I'm hoping uh, that everything goes ahead the way you have it planned uh, and safely and people can still enjoy the event. We'll leave it there for now. But Daniel, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Have a great afternoon. Enjoy the sun. Well, as you know, there is an advisory in place. It is advising Canadians against non-essential travel abroad. This is the Omicron virus spreads. And as you've been hearing from Claire Newell as well, we've talked about it on this show as well. The PCR test back in place for people going across the border. It was lifted for those short trips for just a short while. It is now back in place. But we wanted to find out if this past weekend, the last weekend without that test requirement back if it was a busy one. So joining us now is Gary Halawachuk, president of West Coast Duty Free. Gary, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me. How are things going? Was it a busy weekend? It's been an okay weekend. Uh, we're kind of looking forward both to uh, tomorrow and, you know, the rest of this week. We expect that it's there were a lot of Americans coming in, and I think that Christmas being Christmas, there's still going to be a lot of Canadians going down, even though they do need the PCR test to come home. Are you hearing from people or are you talking to people as they come through about if the reintroduction of that test is going to make a difference? Well, I think from what we're hearing, it'll make a difference once the holidays are over. But I kind of get the impression that... Uh, Everybody is holding their breath and uh, hoping that the new the new strain will stay away, and they want to get they want to have their Christmas. It's been a couple of years, and it's time. Yeah, I'm getting that impression too. Just anecdotally talking to people as well, people being careful and understanding the risks, but still, in many cases, still going ahead with those trips and planning those trips. Uh, this was, I believe, the the last weekend. Or did you see a difference? I know we talked to you when the PCR test requirement was removed for those short trips, the 72 hours or less. Did you see a big difference when that happened? Yes. It. I mean, it never didn't go anywhere back to normal. But once Canada Customs uh, started uh, allowing people back and forth with, you know, without any big hassles, we noticed a nice uptick and it looked like it was going to be promising for the holidays until they changed the rules again. So, you know, we're kind of holding our breath. Uh, we're, we're open. We're open from 7 o'clock every morning through till nine or 10 o'clock at night. And we're planning on staying that way right through New Year's, right through the New Year's weekend. After that, we're going to reevaluate and uh, see what happens come January. And would you say or the bulk of your clientele, I know that in the past you talked about there were still some truck drivers and essential workers coming through, but is the bulk of your clientele then people that are, say, reunited with family or, or taking those trips that they've been putting off? Yes, yes. It's definitely short-term holidays that we're seeing. We're not seeing a lot of the long-term 
other than people flying out of Bellingham. But the short term, the people wanted to get down to Seattle, want to go and go down and visit their cabins they haven't seen in a couple of years, uh, people wanting to do the short-term shopping trips. So we've seen a fair amount of that, and it's been slowly building. But uh, like I say, with the, new, with the new regulations, we don't know what's going to happen come January. What does that do for your supplies then as far as how can you even plan for what do you put on the shelves and what do you order to be coming in the next weeks and months? Well, we've been, <laughs> we've been playing that one real tight to the chest, trying to, trying to order just in time uh, and not, not going overboard with the uh, highways half closed down and with the bottlenecks at bucks. It's really tough. So fortunately, we have a monster warehouse and we're, you know, with our liquor and our tobacco, we are in stunning shape. And the rest of the goods, we're playing good. We're not, uh, you know, we've got a, a few few things that we're out of, but not bad. All right. What what items are kind of the most popular this time of year? Well, good old Christmas and New Year's. It's it's the alcohol scenario, and we've got and we've got a full warehouse of that. So that's uh, that's the one place where we're very very strong in. That is um, that that makes sense. I'm not overly surprised by that for sure. Uh, what do you think it's going to look like then? As far as uh, are, is it a strange place to be in? Where you like you say you're open right now uh, from seven in the morning till nine or ten at night. You kind of have to reevaluate that in the new year. But is it a strange place to be in when we're still seeing the restrictions changing? And uh, on the one hand, great that you're open and that there are some people going through, but certainly nothing like what it was before. And that that kind of uncertainty about what it's going to look like in the coming months. Yeah, I expect that we will be keeping the store hours open, but doing it through a window service. But uh, again, I'm, my fingers are crossed not. My fingers are crossed that people are going to continue uh, traveling and with the, with the potential of getting the third shot, hopefully we'll be, we'll be able to keep the store wide open. And are you confident with the measures in place as far as I would imagine people in the store wear masks and try and distance as much as they can? The image that we have is right off the bat, everybody has to be vaccinated to cross the border. And the vast majority of them know they have to have a test one way or the other. So so in that sense, we're, we're a little bit safer than everybody else. At the same time, with this new virus, who knows? That is very, very true. Well, Gary, I'll let you go, but thanks once again for coming back on the show, and all the best to you. Okay, thanks a lot, Joe. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Well, some good news, especially if you were a truck driver, the Coquihalla reopening today, a big step in rebuilding the roads that were so severely damaged in this province when those floods hit and the mudslides hit. But what is happening in some of those communities where we saw such devastation, so much damage? A couple of weeks ago, we checked in with Sam Ferris, whose name might be familiar to listeners here. She's a homeowner. She has two homes in Merritt that she rents out. And we talked to Sam because she found out 
kind of found out the hard way that not only did she not qualify for the disaster relief fund because she doesn't live in the homes, she rents them out, but she also found out that her insurance company said, by the way, because you denied overland flooding insurance, that you're not covered for that either. Well, after talking to another homeowner in a similar situation, Sam found a little tidbit of information that she wanted to share. And Sam Ferris joins us now to talk more about what is happening with that insurance claim. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Much appreciated. Well, last time we talked, it was right after the flooding had hit Merritt and we knew that so much was destroyed. We talked to you about being a homeowner in Merritt. Do you know anything more about the scope of the damage or how things are looking? Uh, Yeah, a little bit now. I mean, we've all, pretty much everybody that's going to get access to their house has now had access to their house. They broke it down into zones and everybody right through zone four and the red zone four, which were the worst damaged houses. Everybody has now had access to their house and had to go in and, you know, figure out the, I believe there were about 20 houses that will never be inhabitable again. Nobody could even walk into those ones, but most of them were yellow. And the one of my house that has one of my houses that has the most damage um, is just such a mess. My poor, tenants sent me a picture of it it's just you know two feet of mud in the basement and then on the main floor and you know four feet up the wall is got dirty water and it, it, yeah it's it's absolutely stunning but now we have access to it so now i think people are going to be able to rebuild now when we talked to you before we were talking also about insurance and the the part of the insurance being that you own the home but you're not a resident so you didn't qualify for disaster funding has there been any update as far as people getting insurance coverage yes and this is the such an interesting um flip to this. And I really want people to pay attention to this if they know anybody that has ever worked with overland flood insurance or has ever known anybody that needs overland flood insurance. I would imagine there's a ton of them right now, people in Princeton, people in Abbotsford, myself and Merritt. There's a little something that the insurance agencies don't tell you. And you want to kick them in the kneecaps. You know, you just, I, I wonder how some people sleep at night. But what I found out from a woman who went through this, who actually lived not far from my little house in Merritt, the insurance agency, the onus is on them to prove that you turned down overland flood insurance. I didn't know this. And I read this article, and you've got to push them because they're not going to give up. This is a big insurance claim, right? They want to blow you off as much as possible. But as it turns out, um, your insurance coverage, your insurer has to offer you overland flood insurance, and you have to have refused it and they either have to have that on tape or they have to have it in writing or initials and i found this really interesting anyway this woman got her house completely covered once she pushed her insurance agency so i did my insurance agency up in Kelowna, shysters pulling their stockings this christmas in Kelowna. i phone them and of course the minute i say hey do you have a piece of paper with my signature because i don't ever remember you guys offering me overland flood insurance and then of course everybody starts to scramble oh of course we did we have it on paper we this date this date this year we offered it to you you refused it i said do you have it in writing oh of course we do and she said well let me talk let me hand you the manager and everybody sounded a little you know nervous and i'm like oh okay this is great so i get a hold of the manager and she says oh no i do i have your signature right here now i specifically asked her and you have to be really careful I said, you have it in writing that I refuse overland flood insurance. I asked her that four times very specifically. 
I wish I'd recorded it, although I don't know if you can use that, but I wish I'd recorded it. And she said, yes, I do. And I said, okay, can you send that over? Well, of course, you know, a day later, she sends a bunch of things over. Nothing's got my signature on it. Nothing says anything about overland flooding. So, of course, I'm jumping for joy now because, as you said, I don't get DFA funding, financial funding, because I'm a landlord and I don't live in the home. So now I think I have a chance with insurance. So I say to her, look, you haven't proven uh, that I have refused overland flood insurance. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm sorry, was that, was, oh, is that what you thought? No, 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 I wasn't, uh, that wasn't the case. We uh, actually don't offer your area overland flood insurance, which I know is not true because my neighbor has it. And it's just now it's going to turn into this big, ugly story. And it's going to turn into a fight because, of course, they're going to fight you. You're dealing with a house. This is not a cheap thing. This is an expensive thing. Now I'm talking to the general manager. So now everybody's scrambling and, oh, we'll call you back. And I'm sure there's going to be a huge battle. But it's really important that everybody, and I want, I want to get this out there. I'm going to kill it on social media. People need to know their rights. The onus is on the insurance agency to prove that you turned down overland flood insurance. They have to have it either in a voice recording or they have to have it specifically initialed or signed if you did not get coverage um because they're saying you didn't have overland flood insurance you make sure that you ask for those signatures or that vocal recording or you've got a case and you mentioned the other woman that that was how you found out about this so there is at least one Mm -hmm. other case that you're aware of of somebody who was in that situation and then did get insurance coverage she did. She's got a different insurance company than mine. Hers, at least, were honorable, and, and they stepped up and said, oh, absolutely, you have, you know, congratulations. Oh, whoops, we made a mistake. Here's Overland Flood Insurance, and now they're going to take her claim. My company are a bunch of jerks, and obviously they're going to fight this. Uh, really, you don't, you've never offered Overland Flood Insurance in my area? That's funny because it's not a floodplain. What happened in Merritt is a freak accident. Um, it was just a perfect storm of things happening. And my neighbors, everybody around me did, uh, have overland flood insurance or, uh, were offered it and were, is working with their insurance companies. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it stuns me that there are people like this out there, but there are. And as far as you know, too, as well, and I mean, nobody, I think, remembers everything that you talk about when you're getting insurance or when you're talking to the insurance person, but you're pretty sure, at least there's no paper trail, and you're sure that they didn't say to you at any point, hey, do you want this coverage, and you actually denied taking it? Uh, No, I don't remember that ever, but she's changing tack now. She's not even using that anymore because she thought that she got me, and I pushed her, and I called her bluff, and they don't have anything with my signature on it, so now she's trying to use a different story. So what advice do you have then for others who might be in a similar situation or like you are looking at the possibility of not or are being told that they don't have this coverage? You make sure, if that's you or if you know anybody that has been offered that is not getting coverage because that they apparently refused overland uh, flood coverage, you make sure that you go to your insurance agency and you need to see it in writing. You need to have specifically turned it down and refused it. Not just any piece of paper that you signed. It has to be a specific refusal of overland flood coverage. And if they didn't offer it to you, which mine did not offer it to me, although they told me they did over the years many times, they did not. They have no record of that. If that's you, and you need to specifically get it in writing or you need to get it as a vocal uh, message, 
and keep going. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. They're going to try and fight you off. You keep going until you get this stuff, and there's a very good chance you'll get coverage. Well, Sam, I'm glad you were able to join us again uh, with this update and uh, for advice for people that might be in that similar uh, situation. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much, and I hope uh, everything works out for you. Thanks, Jill. Fingers crossed. I think it will. Have a Merry Christmas. Well, this was announced late last week. TransLink is taking a major step and it is to assist customers who are blind or partially sighted. They're going to install Braille signage at every bus stop throughout the region. They're also going to be installing tactile walking surface indicators at every stop or property that TransLink owns or leases. The company saying that these improvements will help customers who are, again, blind or partially sighted better navigate the transit system by letting them know which stop they are at and which buses are on the way. This will be, according to TransLink, the first transit system in Canada to install Braille signage across the entire bus system, and it is supposed to be completed. The installation is projected to be completed by the end of 2022. So how big of a deal is this? Well, Shruti Shra. Shrava is the program coordinator for children and youth programs at the Canadian National Institute for the Blind and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. No, you're welcome. How big of a deal is this as far as making bus stops more accessible? Um, it's a huge deal. Like um, The best thing I can compare it to is when they had GPS um, systems installed onto all the buses, um, which would announce all the stops. Um, and that was a major change and a big step towards um, independence and making things um, accessible uh, to those of us who cannot see um, or can not see very well. I would remember um, before those GPS systems, I would um, you know have to ask the bus driver, like rely on the bus driver, tell me when the stop was, and sometimes they'd forget. So I'd be dropped off a couple of stops after my actual stop. Um, so it made a huge difference, and, it, and it, I think it's going to do the same thing. Um, Especially where uh, where there's stops where like several buses stop. Like for example, uh, we have this a lot in Richmond where you have one bay and like three or four different buses stop at that bay. And I always have to ask, you know, the people around me or the bus driver himself, is this, you know, the bus that I need to take? Um, and so it kind of takes that sense of independence away. Um, you know, something that should be accessible to uh, someone who has sight loss, like myself um, and others with sight loss. It's not because I can't read the bus numbers or the bus routes um, or even know what bus is on that particular stop. So definitely it's going to be a huge, huge step towards making things more accessible, um, making, you know, people who have sight loss more independent. And, you know, so so it's a huge, huge major step for sure. I get, when I first saw this, I guess I was surprised that it wasn't already in place or that there wasn't mm-hmm. some kind of system already in place that, that would have made them more accessible. Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, the reason for that is uh, whether we like to admit it or not, we do live in a sighted world. And these kinds of things, uh, not majority of the population doesn't really think about these kinds of things because, as I said, the majority of the world is sighted. So for them, if they have their written signage, you know, they're good and they're not going to think about, oh, hey, we need tactile written signage or we need tactile indicators or we need Braille signage because a lot of people don't even know Braille is a thing. Um, and so it's up to the, the sight loss community to kind of stand up and advocate for those rights um, and make, making that accessibility um, and the people who fight uh, with and for uh, that community to stand up and make, and make and, you know, fight for those rights, and, and which we have done. And that is why this is going into effect now. Um, 
you know, and I think it, there's always the whole concept of, you know, it's going to take a lot of money. So, yes, the, the commitment has to be there first. Um, and it would have been great if it had been there before. But, you know, we, we finally got to that level and got to that point And I'm super excited about the fact that it's going to be all throughout Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many people do you know? How many people will use something like this? Um, I would say, you know, a couple hundred. Um, I, I've got a couple of my friends live here on the lower mainland and um, as my such as myself, they are very independent. They go to, uh, you know, post-secondary and so they do like a lot of travel with, with buses and things. And I think um, some people who are very wary of using transit because they find it inaccessible might actually be encouraged to start using it. Um, like the SkyTrain system or the Canada system is a bit more accessible with just the way that it's built because they always have that raised tactile platform there and they have announcements there because that's just how they were built. Um, so pe- a lot of people that I know feel more comfortable using the train system but not the bus system. But I think the bus system is finally getting to the level that the train system is at. Right. And I guess that that was something that, that kind of I was wondering about it as well when I saw this announcement that Braille mm-hmm. is something that obviously has been around for a very long time. And I was curious if there is technology that has kind of jumped over it or has taken its place or if we're there yet with technology also helping out. Uh, there is. Um, Braille used to be a big thing and everybody kind of needed to learn it. Um, but, you know, as, as soon as they started choosing computers, and with computers um, came screen reading software. So people started to, you know, use screen readers um, or now that we have iPhones and Samsungs and they have their own sort of screen reading software um, and people just started reading books and things on their phones or just doing so using phones and computers for things. And so kind of Braille fell into the background. And if you knew it, great. If you didn't, you could still get by without it. Um, and they do have... Uh, with technology like refreshable Braille displays, but I don't think that would help you at a bus signage. Um, so I, I feel like a lot of the time the people use a TransLink app on their phone and they try to figure out, okay, how far is the bus away from me now? I use that a lot. Right. Um, so it kind of tells me, okay, I know, you know, number 407 is coming in 10 minutes, but, you know, like what if this other bus, it, it gives you partial independence, but not full as a signage would do. Right. And would somebody then that has vision uh, vision issues with sight or that is, is blind, would it be a given that that person would still learn Braille or is that still something that happens? Um, it does usually happen. I feel like people who have full sight loss will be more prone or wanting to learn Braille, um, whereas people who have partial sight loss would like, like they would want to use their vision as much as possible. Um, but maybe I think the, the prospect of having Braille signage on all the bus stops, and if, especially if those people want to use a bus system and maintain that part of their independence, I think it will actually encourage them if they weren't encouraged already to learn Braille. So it could be a benefit on both ends. Like it could be a mutually beneficial relationship. And I guess is that also why it's important not only having the Braille signage, but from looking at the images in some mm-hmm. of the signs, they're also going to be installing the raised the raised numbers. So yes. you wouldn't need to know Braille, but if you you could touch the sign and know the numbers of which bus was coming. Yes, that is also great to have, um, especially for for those who have partial sight and they know what a print letter looks or feels like. Um, so for them, it's definitely that accessibility will be there, which is great for them because they might not have, a lot of people lose their sight when they're adults, right? Like um, when, when they're kind of already 
into their life or, you know, are into retirement and they're not going to go back and wanting to learn. But really to learn by people who lose their sight early on in life. Um, and so for those seniors or those middle-aged adults, um, having those raised signage, the tactile raised signage would, would take care of their needs because they will know what a print letter is, is supposed to look like. So feeling it, they'll be able to, to access that. And you know, that, that includes, incorporates for both sides of the accessibility. Would you like to see other um, transit companies then in other areas adopt a similar system or a similar initiative to get this installed? Um, yes. You mean like in other, other regions of the mm-hmm. province? Yeah. Yes. Um, I used to actually work in Victoria um, uh, for a year. I did an internship there and their system is much more complicated than ours. And um, the bus doesn't even announce where the bus is going when the doors open. So they definitely need you know, like a more efficient GPS system as well as the signage because that would definitely help that region. I can speak from personal experience because I have used their buses. Um, but, you know, yes, definitely this, um, you know, seeing Metro Vancouver success, I think it should encourage the other parts of the province um, to adopt that, that model. I would imagine too, like you said, without this, you kind of have to ask the driver or you have to ask somebody else who's there to, to double check and ask, say, hey, mm-hmm. which, which bus is this, which bus is coming? It must yeah. have been, that must have been made even more difficult during the pandemic with people socially distancing, staying away. And then yes. on top of that, talking through a mask. Yes, that, that is, that proved to be a little bit challenging and people, you couldn't, you couldn't get too near people. Um, so in that case, if I was out, I would just wait for the bus driver to like ask um, or call Transnic ahead of time and just, you know, try to find the right bay because sometimes there's a get you have to know which bay the bus is going to be at um, to try to kind of figure that out as well. Um, it, it did prove a bit more challenging during the pandemic because of, especially in the beginning when people were afraid of what was going on and what, what needed to happen. Um, so, so that did prove to be a bit more challenging for sure. And like you said, too, hopefully then this new system will encourage people who maybe are are reluctant, don't want to be asking strangers for that information and have been Mm -hmm. reluctant to use transit. This this should open up the system then. It should. Um, And I think uh, what I can also speak to is that it does cause a little bit of anxiety to have to ask people um, to have to ask the bus. It it kind of makes you feel like, oh, you know, I just want to make sure I'm getting on the right bus. It creates a sort of anxiousness in you um, and like this. Just unnecessary stress, really, which you don't need, really, like especially when you have other things to worry about while you're commuting. It, it shouldn't be a problem. All right. Well, Shruti, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and for talking to us more about this. Of course, you're welcome. All right. Have a great day. You too.